0: I always just sort of say as early and as much as you can do well, don't be an early start and try to bite off some large quantity of content and and kind of run yourself ragged and put out low quality content just to try to hit some number. Like as much as you can do uh, early and do it well, I think is beneficial to just get that foundation and start to build the audience and the recognition and Mm -hmm. domain authority and all that stuff to really benefit down the road when you're able to put more behind it.
1: You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode, and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, my guest is Nate Turner. Nate is the co-founder and CEO of TenSpeed, a content marketing and SEO agency for SaaS. Prior to starting the agency in 2020, Nate was the VP of Acquisition at Social Sprout, where he helped grow the company to 100 million in revenue and acted as a growth marketing consultant for companies like Help Scout, Xylo, and Popular Pays. So, Nate, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thanks, Paris. Excited to be here and chat through this stuff today.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really interested in your journey to go from this hypergrowth scenario at Sprout Social and then spinning out into your own agency. First question I have for you, Nate, is what was the trigger for you when you knew it was time to, to do your own thing? Why did you make that decision?
0: So there was you know, a number of factors. Being at Sprout for almost nine years, I was the first marketer there. I really got to go mm-hmm. from the beginning to uh, scaled up quite a bit. And so I knew for a long time that I'm just not like a big company person. And not that you know, by by most measures, Sprout wasn't necessarily a huge company, but you know, we got up to 650, 700 employees. And so I, I just sort of knew that my time was sort of coming to an end. And so it sort of thought through like, what do I want to do next? And so... From there I sort of had this desire to just sort of be, you know, a solopreneur for a bit and just kind of figure things out and work with companies and do that. And so that's what I did when I first left Sprout and enjoyed a lot of that flexibility and working with a lot of companies and really kind of found myself in this place where I was helping companies sort of in a period of transition, help figure out where they're at, what they need, what kind of marketing leader they need. And so understood from the consulting opportunities I'd had and everything that there was a lot of a lot of meat on the bone for companies to pursue and benefit from the content marketing and SEO work. It just isn't necessarily a function that they're going to build out in-house at their stage that they're at. So that's where the early Mm -hmm. inklings of pursuing building an agency, which ended up being 10 speed came from, which was we know what we did at Sprout.
1: Gotcha. Most of the SaaS companies that I'm aware of, their their websites are very simple. Some of them are even one pagers. Well, what is important for a a typical SaaS company with a relatively simple site structure to get right from an SEO standpoint?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of the companies we work with that are, you know, seed series A stage, they typically don't need much, if anything, in terms of like on-site optimization, technical SEO, like those tend to to become a factor as the site gets a little bit bigger uh, and there's just more moving parts. So I totally agree that they are pretty simple. I think, you know, we've certainly seen some that are just, I think a bit lightweight, I guess you would say, like if it is one page, that's maybe not quite enough detail. Like you have to have enough there for both search engines and visitors to really understand what you do and uh, have the proper context on what your product can do. So I think that's part of it is just... It's almost a little bit more product marketing than SEO, but kind of both parts of it, you're having enough there to really be optimized and do well. And then I think there are just occasionally some small technical SEO gotchas that we find that you know, the reasons that content isn't getting indexed or things like that, that are typically pretty easy to resolve versus like a 3000 page website or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think most of the time, there's not a lot to change. And at this point, you know, a lower site with a lower domain authority, a newer company building stuff, like it really does not matter on your five page website, if we tweak your title tag, or, you know, something like that, like, that's not what you need to like magically start ranking and having a bunch of organic traffic. It's building authority, building up the domain and backlinks over time, creating the content and establishing sort of your point of view and, and building trust and everything over time. So mm-hmm. that's the bigger area of opportunity.
1: Yeah. Now I want to spend most of the time on my on content marketing, but before we get there, I want to ask you about link building. Yeah. Do you believe that links are still a big factor and especially for a SaaS website, should they be focused on link acquisition for SEO?
0: I think there's kind of like multiple prongs to that aspect. So one is I think when we see the most like step level change for a company in terms of like performance or even domain authority, that typically comes from when they you know have like a big funding announcement or something and they get picked up in TechCrunch and New York Times or any sort of site that's going to write about their funding round or new product launch or whatever it might be. That's typically where we see some of the bigger jumps is just because you're getting multiple signals from high authority sites. I think early on, there's some benefit still. If you're really like a sub 10 domain authority and you are really just trying to get on the map, there's, I think, some opportunity for for link building. And then outside of that, I think, you know, a lot of the benefit comes from just doing good marketing and creating good content that people naturally link to. You know, I think it becomes one of the biggest factors is just like, hey, this is something we're going to push for long term and we know it's going to keep growing, compounding. And then the last piece I think is if we do link building for clients, it's very targeted, maybe two or three links per month being dedicated directly to certain pieces of content. With a few backlinks, it should be able to perform better. So certainly not you know, high volume, large campaigns, Like uh, not really getting into to that. And, and we don't do anything with digital PR or anything like that either. So I do think there's a place for it, but I don't think that it's like, I think for a while there were teams building out link building experts in-house and like making it a big function, like an ongoing thing, just to try to build high volumes of links. And I don't think that's quite as as relevant or prevalent at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. So most of your focus and your clients focus in their work with you is about content marketing, correct?
0: Yeah. And we certainly have an SEO lens for the content for the mm-hmm. most part, but yes.
1: Uh, are you all writing the content for your clients or you're only advising them on how best to write it and publish it?
0: Yeah. So at this point, I think a little over half of our clients, we do the actual content creation, the writing for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the others, we do the strategy, create content briefs, kind of all the guidance that they need to take that and then write the content themselves.
1: Okay. Which which of those two models do you think works better or does it depend on the type of industry having the clients write it based on a brief that you provide or that you, you all do it for them?
0: Yeah, I think probably leaning a little bit more towards when we create the content, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: primarily just because we have sort of the entire process end-to-end to like keep things moving. And I think one of the biggest hurdles that we see companies have when they're taking the guidance from us and creating the content is that they could just kind of fall out of that rhythm or not stay on top of it, kind of fall behind with publishing or become inconsistent. And I think that tends to be one of the biggest challenges. But if that's equal on both sides, and they're like publishing consistently, I don't think that there's big difference. It's a matter of, you know, who's sourcing writers, who's communicating to writers, getting it written, editing it kind of all that. But yeah, I think when we have control, I think it can be a little bit smoother, but we certainly have clients that have been doing it for years at this point and just doing really well at staying on top of it, publishing and and it works well too.
1: Yeah. I presume that before you all get started working on content marketing, you create some sort of a strategy or an editorial calendar, which looks out from a 10,000 foot view on who are we writing for, and what should we generally be writing about can you walk us through what that looks like which i I presume that that comes at the start of an engagement
0: yeah it does we definitely have a pretty big focus at the beginning of really trying to dig in and understand uh, the client's icp their ideal customer profile target audience persona kind of whatever however it's labeled internally for each company and you know with that it's the goal is to understand as much as possible what pain points they have, how their product solves it. Like at some point, this company was founded on these beliefs that we see this problem in this market. We want to create a product that solves it. Let's get back to that point. Uh, If they have jobs to be done research or or anything along those lines, certainly love to tap into that uh, as well. And Just any sort of customer product research that's been done. And so the goal is, you know, anyone can open up Href's or SEMrush or anything and do keyword research, but really making sure that when we get to that point, that we know where to start our research, which topics are actually relevant to their audience, are going to bring in the right people, uh, and not just traffic for the sake of traffic. So we do quite a bit of of that you know, research and learning up front to make sure we're aligned there, and then we do. In a number of of steps, there's sort of your typical keyword research and in topic pillar, topic cluster research, and like kind of figuring out what some of those themes should be. Content gap analysis, kind of look at a lot of what's out there already, what's working well, build all that together to put together topic roadmaps that we then work with a client to kind of align on which ones to pursue. So our process is we like to do about three months at a time. So the thought there is, you know, if you just do a huge strategy and research project up front and then just sort of work off of that indefinitely, then you're eventually working off of stale information and whatnot. And so the benefits of doing it every three months are we would look at fresh SERPs and in fresh competition data and everything every few months to make sure that as that market's evolving, especially if it's very competitive, we kind of know what's actually working. And the other big piece is some of our most successful clients really leverage us like you would in-house. And so Ahead of the next roadmap that we're building, they're saying, hey, this particular vertical, like we're closing a ton of deals, it's resonating really well, like we want to build more content in this vertical, or they're saying, you know, hey, we're going to be launching this big feature at the end of this next quarter, like, we want to start building content in this area to kind of align to that, and it becomes Mm -hmm. pretty well well aligned and and we collaborate well in that sense. So doing a roadmap every few months kind of allows us to have that flexibility to work with the team versus Mm -hmm. saying, well, now we got to rearrange everything because we already did the big strategy at the beginning. So that's kind of been our approach so far.
1: Yeah. I presume that the large, large majority of content we're talking about here is editorial content that would be published on a blog. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, I would
0: say by and large, yes, we kind of consider, you know, long form written content, maybe on the blog, you may consider it a guide. Uh, we've done some stuff with like help center type of content that wasn't too, too far into like product details. We've certainly done some of that as well. But we at this point, we do primarily editorial content, but then we also do ebooks and guides. Write those as well, and then we also do social content creation for you know aiding and like distributing the content in an effective way versus just posting a link mm-hmm. out on social or whatever. So we do yeah a little bit around that as well, but yes, majority of what I'm talking about currently is is sort of the editorial content.
1: Yeah, gotcha. Uh, you mentioned the promotional aspect of it too. Is it How important is it, and, I, and I've heard everything along the spectrum on this question, yeah. but how important is it to promote? How much energy and effort and resources should a SaaS company put into promoting its content versus creating it?
0: Yes, I, I agree. I've kind of seen everything from like 20% creating, 80% distributing, you know, mm. to kind of all over the spectrum. So I think that like there's a lot of opportunity left on the table for pretty much every company because they spent time creating really good content and they they only promote it once or twice. So they only promote it for this month or this quarter that it was more of a focus and now we're focused somewhere else. And it and it really does kind of lose a lot of the oppor- like uh, opportunity cost of what they could be getting from continuing to promote that. And so my perspective on it really changed a lot, especially from a social distribution perspective when about a year ago, we were just sort of based on where we're at with the team and in like our priorities, we were very busy and a little behind on hiring. And so we just were, you know, not badly stretched, but we were stretched. And therefore, one of the things that fell by the wayside for us pretty classic for agencies is that we stopped writing our own content on our blog. And so I kept going back to the existing content that we had and finding more and more ways to just continue to Either pull insights just to share on social or like to kind of help promote and lead back to that content. And it was really eye opening when you just are creating, you know, for whatever three or four month period, you're creating zero new pieces, how much you can continue to promote uh, the content that you have. So you think about some of the companies that have libraries with thousands of pieces across video, podcasts blogs, white papers, whatever it might be that you know they could effectively distribute content only for a long period of time uh and probably still have pretty good results. So I think I don't think I would advise someone to do that but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So I would say I'm pretty bullish on the distribution portion being necessary. And especially given that like, obviously, you're not going to keep emailing a newsletter list, the same content over and over, because that would be, I think ill advised. But social, like, if you look at the data around the percentage of your audience that actually sees content when you're publishing, whether it's Twitter or LinkedIn, whatever it might be, is quite small that I think that it may feel as though you're being repetitive or annoying when in reality, not necessarily the same people are even seeing it each time you do that. So I I think generally, I think there's a ton of opportunity for distribution. Uh, We actually just dedicated our entire third season of the podcast, which is in progress right now to content distribution and repurposing, just sort of exploring all the aspects Mm -hmm. of that.
1: Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to Hop.Online. That's Hop, H-O-P, dot, online and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit about what I think is the number one distribution channel, which is LinkedIn, and I think it continues to rise. Is it for a, for a SaaS company, is, is LinkedIn enough? I mean, it seems like that's really where all the audience is now. Do you still need to be very active, let's say on Twitter or anywhere else, YouTube or Facebook or other channels, TikTok?
0: Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the audience first of all. So one thing that we talked about is like, I'm definitely biased to LinkedIn. But that's also because pretty much our entire audience is on LinkedIn and active. But like, if a SaaS company sells to restaurateurs or or something like that, in sort of like a food industry, like, I don't know mm-hmm. how much those folks are actually on LinkedIn all the time. Like if they're, you know, day in and day out running a restaurant or multiple restaurants or something like I don't know that LinkedIn brings them a ton of utility, probably for some, but maybe not all. So I think that becomes a part of the question is like, are they actually more on Instagram or where are some of those? So I think generally a lot of SaaS companies sell to marketers and salespeople and HR at SaaS companies. So it's very, it makes sense that a lot of SaaS companies are like LinkedIn would be the number one. But mm-hmm. I think there are probably quite a few out there as well that are finding success in other networks. So we always kind of promote Spark Toro, I think is a really great tool for is at least a starting point of just like really digging in and understanding whatever like podcasts that your audience listens to and YouTube channels they watch and all stuff and really understanding a bit a little bit better where they spend time so I think there's still a ton of opportunity there's tons of startup founders and marketers and everyone on Twitter as well and I think some of it depends on your personal preference for your brand and your company of sharing, We don't have a Twitter company Twitter profile, but we have a company LinkedIn page. So yeah, I think it's a little bit of personal preference as a matter of where your audience is at and kind of understanding those pieces I think are are big.
1: Yeah. One thing that I, I find especially unique with LinkedIn is that to get real engagement and reach, the promotion needs to come through personal profiles rather than through company profiles. First, do you agree with that? And if so... For a SaaS company, what does that mean for them? Does that mean that they have to really activate their founders and their C-levels to get really active in joining the distribution efforts for content? Yeah, yeah. So uh,
0: we just had a good conversation about this recently. I think it's both. So my my thoughts are: if you try to build purely on the company page, I think you can do it. I think it just takes a lot longer. And I think that so we you know we do post quite a bit to our company page, and it's. The goal is tactical, educational content, and then try to do a decent amount of like sharing data and like real numbers too. And Mm so those things I think work well, and we want to have that, but I I would agree like the personal profiles, uh, whether that's just sort of some sort of person who naturally does well inside your company and sort of like builds their own audience, uh, or if it's the founder, but I think that what's most valuable is having both like really quality content on your LinkedIn company page, getting a lot more reach from people, and then Using that reach to help continue to build the company page. So one example is if a person in your company is has a, you know building a strong personal brand and doing well, they also might leave. So like if you haven't leveraged that mm-hmm. to kind of build up the company page and something that has more staying power with the company, then you can lose quite a bit of that reach you know overnight. So I think that's an important part of it. And then also just the company page is an opportunity to be a little more pointed and have your your company's point of view, uh, whereas you may not, you're not going to try to control exactly what an employee or someone the company is saying. So it's that, but I think, you know, certainly employee advocacy is a big thing. Like we had a product that we built for that at Sprout. And, you know, it's really like there are plenty of tools out there to try to leverage your your team and and their network to really be able to publish more. But there's I think a difference between enabling a large number of people in your company to share something and like people actually actively being a content creator and building a a brand there. So I think that this a ton of opportunity. It's just a a lot of nuance there, I think in which profiles and how you do it and how they relate.
1: Yeah. Nate, one thing that I'm also seeing on LinkedIn and something that I'm, I've am i noticed is that the posts themselves are getting longer and longer. And it's almost to the point where it's substituting for the blog post itself. And maybe people may, maybe prefer now to stay in LinkedIn and read that longer form content right there in the form of a long uh, four or 500 word post, yes. as opposed to clicking through to a blog. Would that encourage a SaaS company to th- not necessarily repurpose, but take some of the topic areas that don't need more than three, four or 500 words. And instead of blogging to put them right into LinkedIn as a long form post,
0: uh, potentially I mean I think it's a both and situation yeah. you know like I think there's for example when I mentioned before that I was I just kept going back to the content that we had when we weren't creating new content there are certainly some posts that were almost verbatim copying an entire h2 section of a longer blog post that you know was mm-hmm. three four hundred words long but in its own in that section it was pretty a concise thought on that part of the topic. So yes, I think there's an opportunity to do that. I would probably advise against only doing it there just because you're missing out on if, if it is optimized, the organic search benefits of it. But even still, like just anyone on your site that's researching your company, trying to learn more, want to know what you do and how you think, like having that content on your site, I think is valuable in a couple ways. But to your point or your observation, I think absolutely. I think there's more and more opportunities to create content in sort of that length range or or format that I think works well. The only thing I think is missing is the LinkedIn formatting options are almost none. Like you mostly have to do emojis or you have to do some of those text manipulation things that some people do to have that weird bold font in there and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, well, LinkedIn at at some point was really pushing their own content publishing platform. And I think that's still a high priority for them because you can publish articles in LinkedIn. You can do a newsletter in LinkedIn. And and I do think that their algorithm does favor longer form content. I have a sense that it does in the posts themselves. But I do agree that you still, your website is still the home, should be the original home of, of your content. And for uh, ranking purposes, organic traffic purposes, still a good idea to make that the top priority of where you publish. Yeah. And as well, when people come to the site, in particular SaaS buyers, a lot of SaaS websites do look very similar. And I think they're starting to look more and more similar, um, where you've got features pages, maybe you have use case pages, case studies, et cetera, but the real unique stuff that reveals the real company culture and the essence is going to shine through in the blog. And I think that it can still be very influential in a buyer's journey. Yeah. Let's talk about the KPIs and, and the, the measurement side, because this is also an age old question. I know that you've probably yeah. gotten this a hundred times too, but it's about measuring success. Yeah. And what you always hear is that the reason companies and including SaaS companies don't invest what they ought to in content marketing is because it's so difficult to measure the success of it. How do you measure and define success for content marketing for, for your clients?
0: Yeah. So I think we work with clients you know, even before they join on with us to really kind of make sure there's an understanding and alignment and, and like kind of how to view that. You know, we've certainly turned away folks that were like, we want to double-double revenue through this channel in the next three months, you know, or something that's just very like, mm-hmm. go do paid, like, if that's what uh-huh. you want, like, yeah. that's not what you should do here. So yeah you we know, we certainly work up front to try to be aligned there. And I think Where we typically gain alignment is that content should benefit across multiple parts of the business. So at the highest level, you know, from a brand perspective, you are trying to increase reach the number of places that people are going to find you. And when they do find you see good content that makes them think favorably about you and sort of like a good first brand impression. So overall organic impressions are important. Total number of keywords that you're ranking for. So obviously as you're creating new content. Any one page or post can rank for dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of keywords. So want you see that growing in like general ranking buckets improving, not necessarily stressing over one particular keyword phrase and, and if it moved mm-hmm. from three to four or anything like that. But some of those like higher level, like yes, this is expanding. There are more and more people seeing us, discovering us from here. I think that's a big one. And then we don't get a lot into like your total social impressions and stuff, but that's certainly a guiding factor as well. If they're doing distribution on social, they're just understanding the performance there uh, then you kind of get into like the traffic aspect of it. So we want to understand the organic clicks and yes, real people coming here as well as the other channels to the content. So referral, mm-hmm. direct, social, like all the places that are kind of coming in and, and engaging with the content. And then lastly, you know, from a conversion standpoint, it's not that every piece of content is going to be directly generating Free trial signups or demo requests that are turning into revenue, like perfect, nice, clean, last touch kind of thing. But we do want to measure whatever the key important KPI is for them, the trial signups or whatever it might be, as well as any of the sort of secondary like newsletter signups, things like that. And then we also look at like assisted conversions and just sort of understanding at some point in the process process. That, you know, for someone that converted, they were engaging mm. with these pieces of content that were sort of mm. part of that process of getting them to a point of converting. And then for some clients, they're also capable of giving us some good data on deeper attribution to say like, you know, here's kind of what's happening with revenue. Here's what happened with pipeline for things that were influenced by content or directly from content. Um, And those insights are helpful too. But I think it's those different phases across the buyer journey, I guess, if you will, like that we really want to kind of understand that there's influence happening at each level to kind of positively uh, grow the business and not just purely focused on revenue or free trials, but also not just focused on things like impressions and brand affinity and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it is difficult. I think we often look at the, the conversion path itself. And one of the KPIs that I think has worked for us is to note how many times, what percentage of all conversion paths have at least one touch on mm-hmm. the blog or the editorial content. So it was an assisted conversion. It's almost never the last click, but I think it still remains a challenge, which is to justify or calculate the ROI of content marketing. I don't think anybody has yet really cracked it and yeah. the attribution problem is still, is still there.
0: Yeah. So I know in, in my experience, it's sprout that there were a number of times where rightly so the conversation is, here's where we're at. If I give you X dollars, what can we get from it? Like, let's try to model this out and figure this out. And that makes sense from like a, you know, CEO standpoint, where if they say, whatever, I've A million dollars i want to invest in this next year should i build it into outbound should i put it into product that'll make us retain people and attract new customers should we put it into paid channels whatever it might be like that makes sense that across your business you're trying to figure out how to allocate your investments it's a lot easier to say, well, here's, you know, all the paid campaigns we have. And, you know, we're actually in average position here for these keyword buckets that we know drive revenue, like we think we could actually get more if we do this, and we can invest and improve our conversion rates and whatever, like, it's a lot easier to model some of that out versus being able to say, okay, well, if I go from creating four blog posts a month to 15. What does that get me? We do some of that, you know, forecasting and like modeling out roughly based on that, but mm-hmm. where you actually end up going topically and what actually gets approved in terms of what you can write about. And some of the volumes around those can be different and it varies, but to your point, it's rarely last click. So that becomes, you can model out traffic and some of those things a little easier, but to mm-hmm. fully go through to revenue, I think it becomes a bit more challenging in how you forecast that out.
1: Yeah. And I presume that especially now in today's environment, you have SaaS, valuations are coming down, the money's getting tighter, the growth at all costs mentality is pretty much gone now. It's really about measured growth. Does that push more SaaS clients towards paid channels that have presumably they think have a faster and more measurable return on on investment or return on ad spend? I mean, is that making it harder to get people to invest in the sometimes 12 months plus that you need to invest in content marketing to get the right return back?
0: Yeah, I would say from, I mean, certainly the conversations have shifted that we're having, you know, over the last six months, SaaS space in particular, and maybe budgets getting tighter and the no more growth at all costs. I think that there's the thing that I'm seeing is people still very much see the value in content marketing and SEO, and they know they want to do it. I think it's becoming a little bit more about sequencing the investments versus you know in the last few years when it's been a little more frothy. I guess I think it's been just like we'll do it all. Here's a hundred thousand a month for paid, and we're going to invest in Mm -hmm. content and SEO, and we're going to do this. And now I'm seeing just a little bit more of the sequencing that you know we're making this investment now. We want to do this, but we might do it next or or something like that.
1: Yeah, and then if if there is sequencing is. Is content marketing come after paid in that sequence often?
0: I think so. Yeah, which I I would tend to agree with. Like, that's probably what I would do. If you're you're truly having to choose, like, I can't do both at the same time. I think most of the time, you know, let's be realistic about the payback and like everything on the paid side to know uh, exactly what is acceptable and efficient. But first, let's see how far we can push with that. And when we start the cost per acquisition starts to slip and the conversion rates start to drop because you're pushing, then I think kind of accept that, work with that, maybe grow at a slower rate over time and then start to shift beyond that into some of the longer term investments.
1: Yeah, I tend to think that if you wait until paid hits that plateau before you even start on content marketing, then it's too late. Really, you've missed too much of I an agree. opportunity. Yeah, because yeah. it will take you several months. I mean, and if you're a, if you're an early stage startup. And, and some of this comes from investor pressure as well. If you're entering into a category where there's current pie intent, there's a lot of search volume and there you can get right into the PPC battle right away. If you do that so religiously and don't start any kind of content programs, then, and, and then you wait, and, and then let's say six months later, you've saturated the bottom of the funnel. And then you, you, you say, well, now it's time to move up and start doing content marketing. It's already too late because yeah. it's going to take you so long. I yeah. think what a lot of companies, they miss.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So to, to clarify my point, I was speaking truly of like a very hardcore, this is how much money you have, like hardcore well, sequencing, you but all
1: in a or B. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: totally, totally agree. I think that folks wait too long. They wait until they start to feel the pain of paid not working and then they want to hurry in, into the next. But yeah, I think that's definitely a, a part of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one thing that I had been meaning to ask you also, and when it comes to the strategy itself, well, not everybody's starting from scratch. A lot of people have very big websites and tons of existing mm-hmm. content. And there's a topic or there's a concept called Concept Decay that I think that you're going to be speaking about in an upcoming webinar. Yeah, And yeah. Some, sometimes it's referred to as as a refresh or optimization of existing content. The general premise here is that a lot of content, there's a lot of value that can be gotten out of updating the current content and e- either shutting it down entirely and, and removing it from the index or deciding that it still has evergreen value, but it needs to be refreshed or updated. How does a SaaS company in that situation go about, first of all, identifying which pieces of content are the best candidates for that kind of work? Mm-hmm. And secondly, whether to focus or how to divide the focus between that type of work, content refresh work versus investing in new content.
0: Yes. So yeah, if you're if you're in a unique scenario where you have a lot of content, but you're experiencing that decay across a portion of it and you've not been doing any refreshing, then I think that's definitely a bigger project to kind of analyze everything, figure out what needs it. Like you said, that we prune quite a bit yeah. of content <clears throat> for right. companies where it's just not relevant anymore. So no need to spend time on it and you go ahead and remove it. But I think the the biggest thing and I think that more and more companies are getting better about this is really building that in to your function uh, over time. Instead of it being like, wow, now we have 3000 articles and we have to try to update 400 quickly if you were on top of it and, and building out that that ratio of new to existing over time, then I think that you kind of stem against that. So I think the biggest thing is in terms of identifying it, you need to, there's obviously like you could look at last three months versus the three months before that, or or six months, whatever, and find out which one has lost the most traffic. I think that's a pretty easy way to look at things. And then again, from there, determine which ones are worth updating And then it really becomes a a matter of really kind of going one by one and looking at it, looking at all the keywords that match to that post or or page or whatever it is, which ones have fallen off, which ones haven't. Actually looking at the SERPs for each of those keywords, like what is the competition doing? How's this changed? Is the intent changed? Like there's a, a number of factors there that really go into that. And so really digging in and understanding why. And then from there, you should have a better understanding of, do you need to expand it? Uh, cause it's just not a robust enough piece. Do you actually need to consolidate multiple pieces you have into one, you know, or just some refreshes cause there's dated references. There's a lot of things that go into that in, in how you actually fix it. Uh, and then in terms of the ongoing, I think the really important part of that is that you have to have the systems and processes in your company to say, you know, we're going to do, 12 new and four updates every month. And so that's how we're going to build our roadmaps. Uh, And that's part of what we do for our clients is identify, you know, sometimes we start out just updating, you know, the entire roadmap is updating existing until we get to a better place. And then we shift into a mix of new. And so that's, it's definitely a a thing that needs to be built into your planning process, your ongoing process and how you execute and manage your content program. So it's, it's huge. I mean, it's, if you're not addressing it, it's just eroding, your growth and you're just like on a hamster wheel, basically trying to grow and you have stuff declining underneath. Oh you. yeah. I, th-
1: I think that this concept of indexation bloat <coughs> can really drag down your performance. And if you're focused only on new content and assuming that you don't have to go back and touch any of the old stuff, then it can be a ball and chain really that yeah. slows, slows you down. Yep. Um, yeah, this stuff is as dynamic as it, as it was years ago, I think. And you know, in some ways, it's tempting to try to move on to the next shiny thing. But content marketing is still, I think, one of the foundational aspects of building a brand, building thought leadership and authority. It's often overlooked because in the world that both of us are into the SaaS world here, there's such a pace of growth that's required and, and there's mm-hmm. such an appetite for fast growth that a lot of people don't have the patience for this. But ultimately, if you're not building a brand for the long term, you can't be successful in the long term only with investing in advertising. I think it's not going to be enough.
0: Yeah, it's too transactional. I mean, Jason Lemkin said that before, you know, there's a lot of like pushing things uphill. You're like, you're forcing it, you're making it happen. But then at some point the brand takes over and that really becomes the bigger driver. And so yeah, that, yeah, I think content and you know, obviously we've talked a lot about editorial, but I'm obviously very bullish on, you know, short form video and highly produced video and podcasts you know, certainly continue to be bigger and bigger. So I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And then, you know, what we've talked about with repurposing is like, there's a lot of ways you can say, Mm -hmm. well, here's our top performing posts, you know, on this topic. And we're going to consolidate them and create a short web series that goes deep into all these or whatever. Like you can take learnings from one content type you've been doing and what works well and repurpose into others, whether that's do a podcast season on this or a web series or any of that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. of, a lot of things you can do.
1: Yeah. Well, Nate, this has been great. There's a, at least a dozen, a dozen other questions <laughs> that I could ask you uh, yeah. that I probably don't have time for this time. Is there, is there anything that I didn't ask you that, that you wish I would have asked you or is there anything else that you think could benefit our audience?
0: No, I think the only thing would just be kind of going back to what we said about when to invest and how, you know, I think that that really is a big area for a lot of companies. And so I think the sooner you can do it, the better and really just kind of build that in. But I always just sort of say as early and as much as you can do well, don't be an early start and try to bite off some large quantity of content and and kind of run yourself ragged and put out low quality content just to try to hit some number, like as much as you can do uh, early and do it well, I think is beneficial to just get that foundation and start to build the audience and the recognition and Mm -hmm. domain authority and all that stuff to really benefit down the road when you're able to put more behind it.
1: Yeah, great advice. Well, Nate, thanks very much for for being with me. Thank and you. Some great insights that you shared. I think enormously beneficial and uh, look forward to hopefully having you back on the show at some point in the future.
0: Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks, Paris.
1: All right. Take care. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hophop.online. Have a great day.